the That's Good From You podcast welcomes you into a dynamic conversation about faith and following King Jesus in a complex world. Join us as we grapple with difficult questions and learn to live in the tension. Hi everyone and welcome back to the That's Good From You podcast. We are stoked to be back for episode Four. Number four. How did we get here? I say that every week, but yeah. it just feels crazy it's, to me that we seriously. have a podcast. Seriously. It and just, no, I don't know how yeah. it happens. And people are listening. Right. So thank you for listening. Thanks guys. Yeah. We appreciate so good. you. We appreciate it. We do. And we're so thankful for all of the questions that you put up in the question box uh, on Instagram Ooh, over the yes. last few days. And we're going to record a question and response podcast probably sometime after Easter. This is true. But in today's episode, we have one of those questions that was we asked, do. incorporated in. So we are very excited to be attempting to answer this question. In a fun, roundabout way. Exactly. (laughs) Classic. We are ready to go. Seriously. But before we do that, to frame today and where we're going maybe over the next few podcasts, we should probably talk a little bit about Easter because Mm -hmm. we're currently in the season of Lent, which is a 40-day season in the church where we lead up to, move towards Easter, Mm -hmm. remember the things that have happened in these 40 days in Jesus' life. And so a really, really important question to get us started, Emma, have you started stocking up on hot cross buns yet? <laughs> I haven't. What? Actually, wait, I have a six pack <laughs> in my freezer Excellent. that my mum bought me, but um, shout out to Liz Beams. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Um, but I don't really like the flavor. Sorry, mum. <laughs> Is, um, they're like apple and cinnamon or something. Uh, yeah. And I was like, they're going to go moldy. So I just put them in the freezer in case like we get desperate one day for food <laughs> or I can't, you know, send a link, doesn't cut it. I don't know. That'll do. But um, no, haven't started stocking up. Haven't even eaten one yet. So mm. I feel like we need to get you some hot cross buns. Thank you, Sophie. Okay. Yeah, I'd love that. that. Seriously. On the topic of Easter and hot cross buns. Well, maybe not hot cross buns <laughs> if you're not giving them up. But I have True you decided that. to give anything up for Lent? <laughs> Uh, look, the plan was Instagram. Yeah. Classic, isn't it? Look, I go like majority of the day without it. And then I'm like, oh yeah, quick re-download that <laughs> night for like five minutes, which turns into at least 10, which turns into 20. And then I'm like, oh Emma, you bad thing. You re-delete it, please. And then, you know, next morning I'll get up and live my life. And then the next night it will be re-downloaded really quickly. So look, uh, attempting to give up, not succeeding in that way. Mm. But look, Jesus has grace. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> So good. Hey, and I don't know if uh, you know this or if the people listening know this, but uh, there are 40 days in Lent and the Sundays don't count. So you, you <gasps> yes. actually don't need to give the things up on Sundays. Right. You told me that last week. Yeah. That surprised me. That's right. Because yes, definitely re-downloaded Instagram this morning and I was like, it's a Sunday. It's fine. <laughs> I have a free day where I can indulge. So in what I'm gram. hearing though, is that it's not going well. No, it's not going well at all. Yeah. But that's look, why I don't try. It's okay. I'm still focused on Jesus for Easter and that's fine. But talking of our Easter series, Mm. in the lead up, we um, are going to be, this is the first part of Mm. an Easter series that we are doing. And um, during this Easter series, we're going to be talking about a bunch of different topics like the cross, like resurrection, like souls, lament, Mm. new creation, heaven, not heaven, Ooh, Ooh. bunch of different things. So we are very excited to be starting this series with this episode 
And, you know, where else do you start in an Easter series other than, you know, Mm. Jesus' death? Because that kind of kicks off what Easter is. And so during this episode today, we're going to be covering topics like the crucifixion of Jesus, what it Mm. looked like for Jesus to have died on a cross, what Mm. that meant for people of the day and what it actually means for us. Mm. And specifically the way that we have traditionally framed the idea of Jesus' death through what uh, we can call the atonement. Mm. So we're going to be exploring this big fancy word atonement Atonement. um, and looking into that as we get through this episode today. Um, And the thing is like Jesus' death is a part of the Easter story that most people are familiar with. It's kind of like the crux, the highlight, Mm. Jesus' death. Yeah, Easter, the whole cross thing. Um, But I want to ask this question that I've been asking for a very long time (laughs) in my life. What happened on the cross, Sophie? What happened on the cross? (laughs) That's a very big question. And normally when Emma asks me this question, which she asks it pretty often, she's like, what happened on the cross? I'm usually like, Emma, I don't care. And that's not a great answer, but like something happened. It's just that it's such a big topic and I usually don't want to get into it with you. But today we're going to get into it. So Emma, like, why is this a question for you? Oh, it's just like, you know, I feel like a lot of people can say, oh yes, what happened on the cross? Jesus like died to save me from my sins, which we've been talking about that kind of language the last couple episodes. Mm. Or when the idea of the cross is posed, you just automatically see this picture or this language is used around sin and this like transferring thing happens or like this, this debt is paid or this sacrifice has occurred. But I'm like, no, 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 like, That's fine language to use and great imagery, but what the hell happened on the cross? Like, you want to tell me that some sin was transferred? Like, how did that, like, metaphysically take place in the body of Jesus Christ? I'm like, he was just on a couple wooden beams. Like, how did that happen in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm? Like, what actually took place? Don't give me, like, some gross little imagery thing. I'm like, what happened on the cross? And I feel like we don't actually get to the crux of that question being like, how did it happen? How did the whole sin thing, redemption thing, reconciliation thing happen? How? I just don't get it. I don't think I'll ever get it. And I don't know that we necessarily have a great answer for all of that. (laughs) Otherwise you probably would have resolved this, but it is a really good question to ask. And Mm. um, the fact that Emma wrestles with things like this um, constantly (laughs) blows my mind because I'm like, well, let's just go back to the Bible. And Emma's like, no, but like how? And so we do approach things from two Mm. very different perspectives, but I love that. Um, And today we're coming at things from maybe more your way of doing things. And that freaks me out, Um, but you're excited. So I love that. Yeah. Yes, a framework around all this biblical stuff that's Mm. kind of thrown out. I'm very excited. But we figured that a good question to kick us off would be, how would people in Jesus' day have understood crucifixion? Jesus dying on cross, people dying on crosses. How did they understand that? Yeah. And this is a question that I'm comfortable with because it takes us (laughs) back to the historical context. (laughs) Context. So we'll start with my context question and then we'll move on to your theology question. So um, just to make sure everyone's on the same page, crucifixion, Mm. this word crucifixion is the killing or the torture of someone on a cross. So when we say crucifixion, we're talking about the death of someone on a cross. And we need to give some consideration to how people in the first century would have viewed crucifixion because we are always, always, always in the danger of reading the Bible Mm. from our time and place Mm -hmm. rather than stopping and wondering what did the original audience hear or see. Mm -hmm. So in the first century context, the cross would not have seemed like the victory of God. No one's calling Jesus' death on the cross a victory or a good thing. In fact, it looked like the defeat of Jesus and everything he stood for. The cross seemed to mark the end of the story and people were left thinking, we've got the wrong person. 
So it's not this victorious moment. It's actually like, oh man, everything that we'd hoped for in this person of Jesus, it's like, it's done. It's over. Yeah, wow. We got the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the, the down, the downside to all of this, but there are two different groups. We really need to consider how they view it. Mm-hmm. First, how the Romans saw it. So the Romans are the ones actually doing the crucifying. That was their means of killing people. And the Romans reserved the cross for revolutionaries and traitors. Yeah, wow. And it was meant to be a sign to everyone in the Roman Empire that this is what's going to happen to you if you mess with us. If you mess with Rome, you are going to die on a cross. There you go. So if you're even thinking about starting a revolution, this is where you're going to end up. Hmm. And crucifixion was designed to be publicly humiliating <laughs> and <laughs> shameful. So let's get our heads away from seeing Jesus on this beautiful hillside far away wrapped yeah. in a loincloth. He would have been in the middle of whatever was going on in the crowds, up on the cross, and he would have been naked. It right. was meant to be public humiliation. Yes, because I hear and have read, read mm. how crazy that. Um, <laughs> yeah, often like the crosses and crucifixions would happen like on the on the wayside, like yeah. on the walking tracks, just yeah. like just outside the city gate. Yeah, so it would right. be a place where people would be walking past constantly yeah. and just be like, oh yeah, another guy's dead today. That's right. As people move from town to town, uh-huh. they would have seen the people just outside the city gates. It was probably more convenient outside the city gates yeah. because there's not a lot of space in the city, uh-huh. um, but it was publicly shameful um, and it was meant to be public and people were naked. Yeah. Uh, and the Romans oh. reserved this for the worst kind of criminals. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified no matter what you did. Huh. So if you're a Roman who tries to overthrow the Roman Empire, they would still kill you, but they wouldn't crucify you. Wow. This means of torture was reserved for slaves and foreigners. And to the Romans, the cross was a sign that Rome had triumphed over you. Mm-hmm. It was not seen as the victory of God. Yeah. And so in its historical context, the Romans would have seen, we've won, you've lost. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Then we need to ask how the Jews saw it. So we need to ask, how would have it been seen by the Jews? Because Jesus was Jewish. Mm-hmm. So we need to ask, well, what did the death, Jesus' death on the cross mean to his own people? Mm. And the Jews looked down on anyone who was crucified. Because according to Jewish belief, whoever hung on a cross or on a tree was under God's curse. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 21. So for many first century Jews, Jesus' death on the cross was definitive evidence that proved that he was not the Messiah. Because anyone who died on a cross or hung on a tree could not be the one they were waiting for. Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. Wow. They literally had no framework or worldview to explain a crucified Messiah other than a failure Uh and no Messiah at all. Wow. So when the early church starts claiming that Jesus' death was a mighty act of God, this is complete foolishness to everyone. The Romans and the Jews are like, who are these people that think that this is a good thing? Because to them, it's a symbol of weakness and humiliation. Mm. And yet somehow, 2,000 years later, billions of people around the world are still using the cross as a symbol of their faith totally. and their belief in God. And that's astounding. Yeah, wow. Um, what was meant to be a symbol for humiliation and curse has become a symbol of God being exalted, of being raised up. Oh, isn't that just classic Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> yes, seriously. Turning tables on their heads. Seriously. Everything that he believed and at least stood for just mm. completely flipped. Yeah what the culture was believing and society was seeing. Yeah. Wow. Well, how do Christians see it? Yeah. Uh, That's (laughs) a big, complicated, long historical question. Right. Um, But Christians have asked over the centuries, what did Jesus' death achieve? So, you know, we're not Roman, (laughs) ancient Roman. We're not, we're not (laughs) Jewish. And so we, we are living this side of Jesus' death and resurrection as people who follow him. And so what did his death achieve? Mm -hmm. And the technical term for that is atonement. 
atonement. <laughs> and so Emma, I want to ask you to answer this question because this is now getting into your theology space. Oh, what is atonement? Atonement, as if that is just such a huge question. It makes me giggle clearly. <laughs> so I'm like, as if one would just ask that and be like, yeah, tell me a straight answer. But look, atonement isn't perhaps what you might think. Um, because when you're asked, you know, what happened on the cross, what really happened in Jesus' death, you might automatically think of you know, a certain picture or language that helps you understand or grapple with what really went down. Like, for example, you might think automatically of, oh, payment. Like, mm. I owed a debt, Jesus paid my debt. Or mm. I, I needed saving and Jesus stepped in, took my place mm. on the cross. Like, this kind of language or picture. But the idea of atonement is so much broader than just these mm. little pictures and images that we can get. And in um, his book, Christian Theology, Alistair McGrath says – This, he speaks of atonement and it's just brilliant. I want to quote it to you. He says, the English word atonement can be traced back to the 1500s when the English writer William Tyndale was translating the New Testament into English. There was at the time no generally accepted native English word, which meant reconciliation. Tyndale thus had to invent such a word, the atonement. Mm. This word atonement meant at one meant. That is being at one with someone or being mm. reconciled. Ugh. Isn't that hefty? That's so hefty. I feel like I've never heard something explained like that before when mm. it comes to the atonement. And so we can hold that. Um, yeah, we can take this this example and this quote and understand that atonement is actually the act of reconciliation. Mm. It's being at one with someone. Um, but the thing is how a person actually understands how that reconciling went down is completely different. Mm. And this is where we come to the different images and the different pictures that we can conjure up to make sense of the cross, to make sense of what happened. Mm. But all in all, the atonement is reconciling. It's a reconciling Mm. act between God, between people, between creation, and how we frame Mm. that reconciling looks different. Mm, That's really helpful. Mm. Um, But we, in our question and response boxes, we got a question which asked, what do you think about substitutionary atonement? And so (laughs) we're like, what better way um, than to put this question into yeah mm. this part of our of our episode. So what do you think of substitutionary atonement? So, <laughs> yes. so um, substitutionary atonement has been the dominant view mm. of what happened on the cross for around the last 500 years or so, mm-hmm. at least in the church in the Western world. And this is what some people call substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement. And in this view, Jesus is understood to be the substitute. He goes to the cross in our place. So Mm. we should have been crucified because of our sin, but God allows Jesus to stand in our place to take our guilt. And it's in this place, in in Jesus taking our place and then us kind of getting to almost take Jesus' place that we receive his Mm. righteousness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's often used, the image often uses of a law court where the guilty person goes free. Um, So this is certainly one of the views we see in the Bible. But it is worth noting that this is a predominantly Western view of what happened Mm. on the cross, and it's actually not found in any significant writings before the 1500s. And you might wonder, well, why is that important? And it's because in the last like 50 to 100 years or so, in certain church circles, substitutionary atonement has been taught as if it is the only way to view the cross. Mm. And anyone who disagrees or has a different view isn't really Christian. And in my mind, that kind of view that you aren't a Christian if you don't agree with this one view of what happened on the cross Uh is dangerous and pretty gross. Um, So it not only contradicts the Bible, which uses many images, but it also doesn't allow for voices from the majority world to be heard. And at its worst, it says that those from other points in history 
and from other parts of the world today aren't really Christian because they don't hold to this one view. And I find that really yucky. Well, yeah, fair. Because it is the the prominent, the most dominant Mm. way that we can understand what happened on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. And it might've worked for us for the last 500 years in in the West. Mm. And that's really good. Like it's great that we've had a way of explaining it, but I would never want people to get to the point where they believe it's the only right way that it can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a little bit of historical context on substitutionary atonement. But the question we got asked on Instagram was specifically, what do we think about it? What do we think about substitutionary atonement? And my answer to that is like, it's fine. If it works for you and it makes sense to you, that's great. Um, It's certainly an image that the Mm -hmm. Bible uses, but it's only one of many images that the Bible uses. And so I would want to be careful about overstating the significance of this view. If it makes sense of what happened on the cross to you, great, keep using it. But if it doesn't make sense and it doesn't really work for you, don't stress because the Bible actually has other images that it uses. I think beginning to understand that it's not heretical if you're like, hey, me and my brain don't really quite get the whole... Mm you know, Jesus was a substitute, took my place, kind of paid my debt situation. Mm. And that's actually fine. Like, yeah, you're not, you're not wrong and you're Mm. not right. If you stand by this view, it's simply, it's almost like, I don't know what your personality, the way that God crafted Mm. you to think and behave and function and, Mm. you know, wrestle with things like what, yeah, what makes sense Mm. for you in the way that you, yeah, understand the world to be. And in the culture you've grown up in. So some places the law court thing is going to work really well. And in other parts of the world, it's probably not going to work well because law courts don't exist in the same way they do in our Western world. And even for me in our Western world, like I love the substitutionary atonement works for people, particularly like in reformed um, and churches and particularly in the United States, but it doesn't necessarily, like it doesn't do anything for me. And so it's actually some of the other images that the Bible paints that uh, like expand my imagination of what happened on the cross. Yeah. Well, can we dig into what are these other images? Yeah. um, Yeah. That are seen within scripture. Yep. So there are six different images that the Bible uses to talk about what Jesus has done to reconcile us Mm -hmm. or atone us back to God or to rescue us. And interestingly, each era of the church has actually emphasized a different one depending on what's worked in their context to make sense of the cross. So you can read uh, like historical overviews of this and see at different points people have emphasized different ones. Hmm. But just to help us get a big kind of picture sense of this before we dive into each of the six, the way the death of Jesus is talked about in the New Testament is a multifaceted event. Hmm. And the image I like to use for this is that of a diamond. If you think about a diamond, it has many different faces in the way it's cut. And, you know, the more faces it has, the more it sparkles and shines and the Mm. more brilliant it is. And this is actually a really helpful image because in a diamond, each face reflects off the other. And that's what gives it its overall sparkle and shine and brilliance. And so if you look at something with multiple faces and they all interact, it's actually the sum of all of those faces that show how amazing it is. And that's how the New Testament writers talk about the cross. Wow! There are many ways that the Bible talks about the cross, not because they contradict one another, Mm -hmm. but because the cross is so inexplicable and incomprehensible that we actually need to use lots of different images to start to see its brilliance. And so they actually complement one one another and help us see the cross all the more clearly. That's really cool. And it almost like opens up the way that we can see the gospels because, you know, that's a big question. Like why and how are the gospels so different? The four Mm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, they are all a part of one story that's helping us to see something mm. in in its fullness. 
Yeah, it's that same sort of idea that actually having four accounts of Jesus when they're all viewed together help us to see some of the brilliance of the person of Jesus. Oh. And it's the same with these images of the cross. Yeah. And so the first one and the most common one is the idea of substitution. And we've already talked about that, the idea that Jesus takes our place. And so we're not going to spend too much more time talking about that other than to say that it is probably still the primary way that people view the cross today. Yes. But Emma, what's the next image? Yes, so our second image that we can get here is that Jesus is victor. This image that Jesus is our mighty champion, he's the one who overcomes sin, death, hell, the enemy, demons, all that kind of stuff, and that even all of God's people together couldn't defeat these kind Mm. of powers. And so Jesus comes as our victor, he accomplishes the victory over evil and all of oppression. Mm. And what I thought was great was in his book, um, Christian Theology, Chris Morgan quotes a a man named John Miberty. Um, And he says this, he says, the greatest need among African peoples is to see, to know, and to experience Mm. Jesus Christ as a victor over the powers and forces from which Africa knows no means of deliverance. Right? Yeah. Like understanding that your context plays Mm. a huge part in how you see uh, the story and the death of Mm. Jesus at Mm. play um, and and what really speaks to you and what um, you can understand and Mm. Um, yeah, begin to really take a hold of for yourself. Yeah. And yeah, for the people within African culture, it looks like perhaps Jesus being victor, Mm. um, bringing victory and might and power over evil and oppression, that actually is really relevant and necessary for the people of that. Um, yeah, context. So good. Mm. What's the second image we get? Third image. I mean, third. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. So the third image is of sacrifice. Um, and oh, it's a bit icky. I don't eat a lot of meat and so I don't like this one so much, but the image oh, sure. of sacrifice in, um, is central to the Old Testament worship. Um, animals would be sacrificed so that people could be purified or cleaned from their sin mm. so that people could be in God's presence because people who were unclean or not purified couldn't be in the holy, clean and pure presence of God. Mm-hmm. And so in this image, Jesus is our sacrifice. Um, So we have a remedy for sin or we have the solution for sin as Jesus offers himself. He takes on all of our sin and our filth by laying down his own life. And it's his um, sacrificial death that purifies and cleanses us from our sin. Yeah, right. Interesting image, hey? And that's probably Mm -hmm. something that we get, at least. I know a lot of Christians in a lot of Mm. long Christian being Christian for their Mm. entire lives kind of can pick up that image of sacrifice well because they get the context of Old Testament. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Another image that we get is the idea of a new Adam. Mm -hmm. So this image portrays Jesus as the second Adam. So Adam in Genesis brought in death through disobedience. Mm -hmm. And in Jesus acting as the second Adam, he did what the first Adam never could. And that Mm -hmm. is by Jesus actually being obedient, he brings life, not death. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like um, Jesus lives as the true human or the true Adam that we've all failed to be, but were created to be. And he makes a way for life um, through his obedience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm. All right. The fifth image. um, This is the image of Jesus as the redeemer. And this image shows Jesus as one who sets people free, that he buys people out of their slavery by paying the price of his own death. And I think in the modern Western world, this can be a hard image for us to understand uh, Mm. of Jesus as redeemer, because we aren't slaves. um, And particularly those of us who live in a fairly like middle to upper class white Western world uh, have never been in danger of becoming slaves. Mm. And so we don't really understand the depth and the horror of what slavery looks like. But in the Roman empire, up to one in three people 
were slaves. So like around 30% of people were slaves. So this is like the idea of redeemer in the ancient world would have been something that blew their minds and just inspired them and would have been amazing. Uh, And so we hear that, but then if we think about our modern world, there are more slaves in the world today than there ever has been at any point in human history. The estimates are 40 million slaves. What? Um, Yeah, it's massive. And that's probably an underestimation because, you know, some slavery we don't know about. And the hard part for us as people living in the West is that these slaves exist because we want our clothes, our phones, our food and our porn really cheap. Um, And so in our world today, we're actually more likely to be the captors, even if it's unknowingly, we're actually the ones holding people in slavery, even if it's from a distance, because we want things cheap. And so it's hard for us to see Jesus as redeemer because it's hard for us to put ourselves in the place of a person needing redeemed from slavery. Wow! But for someone caught in slavery, this image of Jesus as the redeemer makes total sense and is just like the best news there could be. Wow. When they have no way out. Yep. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Great. So the sixth image that we get here is this idea of reconciler, that this idea of reconciliation or peacemaking, Mm. that Jesus is our peacemaker. And it's a picture where we see this separation traditionally just between God and humanity Mm. that must be overcome. Something must be fixed in order for us to be drawn back into relationship. And we see here in this image that Jesus, by dying, he Mm. brings peace and he actually draws us, makes a way for this relationship to be brought back to its, its wholeness, its proper place. But we can see that with a bit more of an expansive view, the things we've been touching on in the last couple episodes, that Mm. this relationship that has this separation that needs peacemaking and reconciliation is not just limited to God and people, but extends to other people, it extends mm. to our inner self and it extends to creation. So yep. what does it look like for God to be reconciling mm. and peacemaking between all these relationships? Yep. Yeah, so good. And that probably for me is the one that hits home um, mm. out of all of these images just personally. Yep. Um, but if thinking about all of these six images together seems a little bit incomprehensible, then I would say we're in good company yeah. because Paul in his letters calls this the mystery of the cross. Mm. Um, it's something where there are just so many different ideas and we kind of have to admit this is actually too big and too complex and too brilliant for me to completely comprehend. And if Paul can call it a mystery, then I think that that should actually change our approach and we should view the cross, view our view of the cross with humility. So we're not coming in and saying this is the only one. If the Apostle Paul is saying the cross is a mystery, then Mm -hmm. I need to say, I need some humility with this, with which one I'm choosing. um, Or which one you bounce between, like depending on what's going on in your world, depending on what you feel like you, yeah, Yeah. I guess almost need. Yeah, Um, that's it. mm. Um, But the big goal would actually be viewing all of these pictures together. Um, These images don't describe six different things, but there's six ways of describing the same thing that when we see them together, like the faces of a diamond, Mm. start to show us the beauty and the brilliance of the cross. But if you are anything like me, (laughs) at this point, you might be thinking, who cares? So what? What difference does this all make? Um, I don't have a theology brain like Emma that likes to kind of theorize about these things and, you know, (laughs) think about it. These lofty conversations actually annoy me to no end if there's no practical outworking. And so I need to ask the question, how is this practical? And what makes this practical for me 
is how we talk to people about Jesus and how we explain to people who don't know Jesus why he is so significant. Mm. So it doesn't work to walk up to someone in a country that doesn't have a penal legal system and talk to them about substitutionary atonement. They have no framework for understanding a law court. Mm -hmm. And so just like that quote we shared, in the African context, Jesus as the victor over the powers of darkness is probably the better image to use. Or if you're talking to someone who's been rescued out of slavery, use the idea of ransom. And in our Western context, I would actually say that substitutionary atonement probably just ain't it. And that's Mm -hmm. where the title came from today. Now, some people will disagree with me on that, and it's fine, because we do live in a legal system that kind of works for this substitutionary Mm -hmm. atonement, the, Mm -hmm. the guilty person going free. Where I wrestle with this and where I struggle with it in our context is that sin language doesn't get used much in our world and it doesn't make much sense out of the Christian context. Mm, And so for for me, the reason reconciler works in my conversations with people about Jesus is that they like people can understand broken relationships. They can understand that there's something in themselves that's not quite right, that they're experiencing things that don't feel the way they should, or they Mm -hmm. know because they've experienced relationship breakdown in, you know, family context or whatever, or they're looking at the news and they see that there's conflicts going on in the world. And then people can look at creation and go, actually, something's not right. Something's going on here. We've got floods, we've got bushfires and all these things are happening. Something's not right with creation. And so this idea of broken relationship actually in my experience, hits home the best for people. And if Mm. we're able to then say there's also a fourth broken relationship and it's actually the relationship with God. And when that's put Uh, right, all of the others are put right. Um, So for me, I found that one works best. But what I would say is just try them out with people, have conversations with people Mm -hmm. about each of these and see which lands. And at the end of the day, use whichever model works best for the person that you're talking to. Right. And this is what we call contextualization, putting uh-huh. it in a person's context. Yeah. If we want people to know Jesus, uh, then I think using an old fashioned model or something that doesn't work in the context is actually going to defeat the purpose. We want people to know Jesus. So let's talk about him in language that people understands. Fully. And when we do that, we're modeling what God does because he's a God who speaks mm. to his people in their time and place in a language they understand. And so we actually model the way God communicates with people when we communicate in language that they can understand. Yeah, fully. That there mm. is no right or wrong either at yeah. that for yourself or for others. So mm. exactly, just like trial and error. Yeah. Let's see what works. Let's yeah. see what fits. Let's see what, um, yeah, can really be taken hold of for people. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. But Emma, this is a question that you get hung up on. <laughs> I would say probably all the time. <laughs> Literally. This I'd idea s- of what <laughs> actually happen on the cross and you started at the beginning with a bit of a rant about like what actually takes place how does the sin get transferred or how does the brokenness get restored or how is Jesus the victor how does how is evil defeated and so when we were thinking about this podcast you shared a quote that you love uh, from a book that I don't know whether it helps you necessarily maybe it helps you wrestle with it a little bit but do you want to explain to us how you sit with the question that you don't get an answer for about what actually happened on the cross how do you sit with that it's disgusting (laughs) I hate it and honestly it would be a question that comes up for me I no doubt weekly Mm. like I was with a friend the other night and my entire big huge crises in my life literally came back to this question of the cross, what happened on the cross, mm. the whole Jesus died thing, like what went on mm. to have changed my life? Um, because now things are, yeah, it's just, it's yuck. <laughs> I hate it. I hate that I don't have an answer. And I've been wrestling with this for so long, writing essays, talking to lecturers, talking to a bunch of different people. Mm. And 
I could just never get an answer. I could just Mm. never fully get something that sat well with me or felt like could satisfy this thing that I was after. Mm. And it was when I was reading um, a bit of a book called The God I Do Not Understand, uh, which I highly recommend, Mm. Um, just early on it spoke about um, Jesus and the way that he set out to explain the atonement but not in a way that we would expect, right? Mm. So we're thinking Jesus the night before his death is like Last Supper kind of mm. vibes, ready to maybe talk about what's about to take place, the fact mm. that he's about to die and it's about to change everything. And he didn't explain the atonement in a theory, mm. but instead he sat down with his disciples and had a meal. Oh. That is, isn't that just absolutely insane? This mm. quote says, Jesus set out to explain the atonement to his disciples. When he did that, He did not give them a theory, but a meal. Mm. And we can even see that after the resurrection of Jesus, that I'm sure disciples would have had so many questions. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't sit down and say, all right, guys, hit me with your questions. I'm going to give Mm. you six theories and we can just like figure out a framework for how you can understand this. Mm. He sat on the beach with them and ate fish. Like this is the kind of Jesus that we see. And this was something that helped me just like settle. Mm. That I was like, you know what? I don't understand this and it and it kills me it Mm. kills jesus it kills me (laughs) like it really gets me but at the end of the day the kind of jesus that i know is a jesus Mm. who says all the theories all the Mm. questions all the answers i don't really care that much yeah that he actually cares about being in relationship with me and so if i've got that then i've got enough Mm. yeah wow Mm. i think this this for me speaks to a deeper you were laughing at me before when i suggested even saying this but it speaks (laughs) to a deeper way we understand and treat the bible and that is that the bible isn't a systematic theology textbook it doesn't set out to dot point format tell us everything there is to know about jesus death on the cross Mm -hmm. it tells us a story And stories teach in different ways. They Mm. invite us into them to find our place in them, to um, explore things from a different perspective. And so we need to see the Bible as a story. And it's exactly what Jesus did. Rather than giving them a dot point list of what the cross meant, he ate with them. He told them stories uh, about what his death meant. And I think that's really important that we see the Bible as a story, not as a systematic textbook. Absolutely. And I, th- I think just finally something else is coming to mind, Re. how do you deal with this, this question that's mm. kind of landing here and you're not getting an answer to? I remember having a conversation with, yeah, someone in my life, super intelligent man. Um, and he, I, I was just like, bruh, how, <laughs> what happened on the cross? Can you just like, tell me what took place? You know, all these questions again. And he just sat down and said, Emma, you got to work backwards, backwards from what you know. Mm. And what we know is that Jesus' death changed everything. Mm. And so we can actually work backwards from the fact that we know that when Jesus died, something happened. Mm. Something happened that changed the game for everyone, all the creation, all relationships, everywhere in the world was impacted by this thing. The fact that we're still talking about it 2,000 years ago says that something happened that day. Mm. And that actually if we doubt the depths of the cross and remain really confused by what happened, um, that we know something did happen, Mm -hmm. that reconciliation happened in some sort of way, however you want to frame that, but that actually we're invited into that something that happened, Mm -hmm. that we're invited to to sit and wrestle and think about it and have conversations about Mm -hmm. it because something changed for us Mm -hmm. um, and we can, yeah, claim that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, we need to sit in the tension with this one, as we say at the end of every episode, because we know that what what happened on the cross changed the world, fundamentally changed Seriously. the world. But what exactly it is, 
Jesus sits down and says, let's have a meal. Right. Mm. Yeah. Jesus. I love him. (laughs) So good. So, Emma, do you reckon we should leave it there? Is that a wrap? Oh, my gosh. You all better wait for next episode. It's going to be juicy. (laughs) Start getting your blender out for the fresh oranges. I don't know. Nah, man, it's going to be like crazy. Yeah. We are really excited about this series. We're going to be talking about some massive things. We're going to be talking about lament. Um, resurrection, Mm -hmm. souls, (laughs) new creation in heaven, all sorts of fun things like that. Um, So stay tuned because we are really looking forward to that. And I guess we'll catch you in the next episode. Absolutely. See you later. See you guys. I can't do it yet. I think you need to clap. (laughs) If I clap, will you start talking?